It's about mindsets and how we can think about the business in a different way. Technology is only one side of the coin. Hello and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, Barbara Martin Coppola, IKEA's first ever chief digital officer. She'll talk about leading the digital transition for that 78-year-old company and how those plans helped it weather the pandemic. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please, take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. We modernized big chunks of the technology landscape, and this foundation needs to be strong, needs to be secure and modular to adapt. Barbara Martin Coppola is the Chief Digital Officer of IKEA, a 78-year-old global home brand that most people know for analog things like Billy bookcases and a cafe that has delicious meatballs. Technology, however, plays a key role for this company, one that is leveraging everything from AI to data with even drones on the horizon. Investing in tech ensured that IKEA soldiered on during the pandemic, a crisis that during the worst of the lockdowns forced 75% of its stores to temporarily close. We threw all the schedules out and all these functions were actually suddenly completely focused in getting Ecom right. Barbara was brought on in 2018 after more than two decades of experience in tech companies like Google and Samsung to run one of the biggest digital transformations in the company's history. Her investments in data and tech ensured the company could absorb the overnight surge in e-commerce and gave it a special window into how the pandemic was changing life at home for people around the world. She talked to Meet the Leader about the capabilities IKEA is building and how technology is transforming everything the company does, from supply chains to the shopping experience to how it helps people live better for the planet. Technology very much can work towards accelerating sustainability for inhabitants of the whole world. She'll explain all of this in the surprising way a background in music prepared her. But first, she'll share what it means to be Chief Digital Officer. So Chief Digital Officer means transforming the company towards a new business model, transforming the way we work, incorporating digital and technology into everything we do. And it means uh, rethinking the company in the digital age. I'm responsible for everything digital around the company. So it starts in the supply chain uh, all the way to fulfilling to customers, as well as how co-workers are uh, working, um, digitalizing their tools so it has many, many different layers to it, as you can imagine, people, technology, business, and orchestrating all of it together with my peers in order to move the company to a different level. One of the items on your to-do list was IKEA's digital transition, the biggest in the company's history. Can you talk a little bit about the before and the after of that transition so people have a good sense of the scope of the change? Yes, the change is huge. So the company IKEA needs to transform itself to be relevant to the lives uh, of people in, in uh, you know, this age. And so that means transforming into how they interact with the company, how they consume the goods, 
also fulfilling the, the purpose that the company has in terms of doing that in a sustainable way. Um, in order to be competitive today, companies need to be technology companies, uh, where technology underpins absolutely everything or almost everything we do. And, and it's really transforming the, the technology, um, but also redesigning a different way of working, processes, business, speed, agility, design. And that had to happen really quickly because during COVID, we tripled the e-com level at IKEA. What does it mean? It means that from selling, uh, you know, in the stores, the stores closed and overnight, IKEA Digital Ecom was the face of IKEA. And so, thanks God, we had been transforming for two years before because we could face the levels and the peaks of demand and fulfill uh, through the stores this high demand. And why am I emphasizing through the stores? Well, uh, the demand being so high, IKEA uh, was going to actually had to build uh, 15 different warehouses in order to fulfill the needs of people. And instead of doing that uh, through technology and digital, we were able to transform our stores into fulfillment centers, which means that uh, cost reduction, imagine 15 warehouses, a lot more sustainable than building warehouses, and uh, technology coming to orchestrate the goods, changing how we manage the company, especially in the stores, and being able to become omnichannel, you know, in a very, very accelerated way. Also imagine what it means operating cash and carry and then operating cash and carry and ecom and all of it combined. I wouldn't say overnight, but almost overnight. So it's a huge change. You mentioned that some of these capabilities were building before the pandemic and that the pandemic sped their adoption. What were the new capabilities that needed to be built? The first one was to get the skills that we needed in order to do that. So product, digital, uh, mindset, engineering, design. So we really build the muscle of a technology company within IKEA. The second thing is we uh, modernized big chunks of the technology landscape. So that is, you can think of it as the foundation of the house. And the foundation of the house needs to be ready for anything that the future might require. And this foundation needs to be strong, needs to be secure and modular for uh, being able to adapt. And then the mindsets in, inside the company. Since um, growing online is not the same as growing in the store. And so that test and trying agile mentality, the power of data and what you can do in order to manage a company through that analytics and, and how the whole sort of like ways of working is transformed, I believe, for the better in order to, you know, be uh, responding and proactively creating the IKEA of tomorrow. When it comes to the transition, what was the problem that the transition was looking to solve? It's about being relevant to the, the changing consumer behaviors, really. And consumers' behavior really was opening an app or the phone, wanting convenience and making sure that they could relate to the brand they love in their own terms. For IKEA, you know, uh, it was really important to think about three main things. How can we, you know, continue being relevant 
and continuing affordable for many people. The second part is how can we be accessible for real? So whether you want to go to the big stores or you want to interact in the city center or in the comfort of your couch, you should be able to. And then how can we do that in a people and planet positive way? And that is also something that the company is really, really keen on is growth in a sustainable way, believing that by 2030, we will be positive uh, climate-wise. So without technology, there is no way those ambitions are feasible. So it's a huge transformation and underpinning it is software technology and data and new ways of working. To make this possible on the data side, what sorts of technology investments did IKEA need to make? From a data perspective, it was about uh, revolutionizing the data landscape of the whole company, from how we manage the company through analytics and data, but then all the way to building algorithms for whatever we wanted to achieve, whether it is solving customers in a better way, to orchestrating the goods in the store towards different routes in a sustainable way. The applications are really, really wide and and data is really at the center of it. So we had to invest quite a bit in data science, analytics, product management. But then most important is really thinking that Technology is only one side of the coin. Transformations are primarily about people. And it's about mindsets and how we can think about the business in a different way. And how do we bring people along to actually be able to perform in a different way with the different tools that are available now? With that mindset issue, what's the biggest challenge with that, especially given that so many of IKEA's plans were happening at such an accelerated pace? Well, one of the important parts is to reassure people that the identity and DNA of IKEA will never change. And and the culture, the values, the mission that IKEA is all about will remain for many decades to come. And that's really important because the technology tsunami can be frightening to people. It can be, my God, you know, we don't want to become another company. And so it was really important to say, we are not going to be becoming another company. We're going to be ourselves even stronger. And so that that was important. The other part is I have been performing, you know, my tasks and my jobs for a long time in a certain way. And now this data technology comes, am I, am I going to be disrupted? And it's saying that all the skills and leadership and management that people have been learning uh, along the ways are so applicable to the new, new jobs. It's not about being phased out. It's about reapplying your skills and knowledge and being augmented, actually, with new tools. So it's rallying people along so that, you know, we invest in their future. We get all the energy and the power to build the new IKEA. Was there a moment where you hit a wall during the pandemic? Something where you eventually worked through it, but there was a moment where you weren't sure the way forward? Well, the the world was when suddenly 90% of the stores were closed. We threw all the schedules out and we got together in a very, I would say, decision-making, empowered way with different functions. And the fact that all these functions were actually 
suddenly completely focused in getting Ecom right was an, a huge accelerator for IKEA to get in place some of the things that we, would have taken a lot longer. The other thing that was really, really beneficial was I'm a huge believer in learning by doing. And so the company did invest thousands and thousands of hours in training remotely. And at the same time, they had the chance of really getting it to be done and experimenting it and learning how amazing and powerful this can be. So I think, you know, it's, it's really taking the, the moment of saying this is an opportunity, even if it can be scary and overwhelming. Well, let's, let's get together, let's do it and, and accelerate actually the learning and the skills of the whole company. And, and, it, and it worked. It worked uh, really, really well. Not that it hasn't been intense, but it worked. Are there processes that were built during the crisis that you guys still use? Things that you realize, hey, these are battle-tested, they're worth keeping. Yes, we're not out of the crisis. Many of uh, you know the stores are, are closed. We are helping India as much as we can right now. We've got thousands of people uh, working there. And so it, it's uh, continuously you know, monitoring and, and making sure that we do the best situation possible. The analytics depth that we have now is like unprecedented compared to what we had before. And we are on top and we forecast every week, um, you know, for the whole world and for regions. It's been uh, outstanding to see. The second thing is governance has changed. We are not as governance heavy as we used to be. So there's a lot more empowerment for action and decisions that uh, we kept out of, um, you know, this period. And finally, you know, it's the realization that we miss each other as well as human beings, because we've been apart for all this time, you know, thinking about the future of work, what is going to stay in terms of remote versus meeting and having that human connection to many lovely co-workers around the world. And so a lot of thinking on, on how are we going to be shaping this so that we continue, you know, feeling and being part of IKEA. So you talked about building this data infrastructure, having data science, looking at these things in a different way. What did the data enable you to do that you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise at the time? But data gives you instant information about what is going on. And it gives you instant information from availability to products, you know, where products are being moved into the system, all the way to how people are reacting to the situation that they have in, in front of them. So we saw, for instance, a big surge of wanting desks, and that we saw through data immediately and how everything organizing your home became incredibly important. So all of this is data coming, but you can see immediately the correlation between certain COVID situations and the needs of people. As the pandemic is spreading, you're actually seeing the same patterns play out and move across the globe, sort of like a storm. What was that experience like? Well, you definitely saw that starting in China, where IKEA has a very strong presence, right? It explodes the demand online for sure. And then it moved to Europe. And in Europe, depending on how locked down or not the economies were, then the demand would be actually higher and higher, especially in the different categories that we mentioned. 
Then it went to the U.S. And we have seen actually global supply issues in availability because the demand was so high that that it actually was beyond what we had anticipated at the time. So it's, it's been um, interesting to watch, but especially in the light of adapting and, and making sure that we can we can do what it takes to actually help people have a good setting at home. So with all this data, was there one factoid or trend that stood out? Well, there was a question of whether e-com levels will be sustained when the stores opened. And when, when I joined about three years ago, the level of e-com was 7% of total revenue. And now, uh, three years later, is about 33% uh, of total revenue. So it's increased in an incredible way. And what we see is that not only the income levels are sustained when stores are open, but they actually make the whole market bigger. So it's not that e-com cannibalizes the stores, but they actually fit into each other in this omnichannel reality to grow and help each other. And that is something that has been, you know, through data demonstrated to many in the company to actually go even more full in into the omnichannel reality where IKEA is operating. And then what I would say as well is understanding how interconnected we are as, as a human race and understanding the global responsibility that IKEA has uh, to do the right thing in the digital world as well. We've got more data we can uh, really use. Um, it's not about what we could do about you know, all this data, but it's what we should be doing with this data. And it's shifting the paradigm of trust and really thinking, okay, uh, how do we build the trust in the physical world that we have you know, now in the digital world, knowing that there is like management of privacy and data, etc. And so a real reflection on saying, well, we want to bring our values to this new world and we are able to shape uh, new things that have not existed before. And, and that's very, you know, motivating overall. A lot of people might not have dug into the data as much as you did. Was there an aha moment when you realized, hey, we need to invest in this in a different way? Well, data unleashes uh, exponential value creation. It is so powerful that at the same time, there is a, a real reflection around, okay, how do we put guardrails to this magic wand? And how do we make sure that it reflects the values that we have? And then starts actually the difficult uh, realizations here to say, we need to treat data in a different way for the many consumers. And we're gonna be innovating an experience that people haven't seen before. So no hidden menus, no privacy settings that are very difficult to manage, legal jargon. We're actually going to be offering something that will be so simple to understand that people will be fully in control, visual, uh, and at any point in, in your experience with IKEA. With all the things that IKEA has been building as part of the digital transition, what is possible now that might not have been possible 10 years ago? Ecom and, and the whole possibility that we have of different ways of fulfilling, pick up, click and collect, um, remote selling, being able to meet different people virtually and uh, being counseled around how to build your kitchen in a remote way. All of that uh, was definitely not possible 10 years ago. 
but also is this thinking about how to live a sustainable life at home. So I'll give you examples, like through the site, you can now select sustainable materials and be able to buy affordable IKEA products, you know, this way that fit a sustainable life. Going into LED or producing your own energy, for instance, because um, IKEA sells home solar panels as well. So there's a whole revolution around what we want to build as better life for many people through the IKEA products and, and also who we are and, and the sort of content that we produce in order to inspire people to live healthier and more sustainable lives. IKEA has a range of initiatives that I think a lot of people may not be familiar with or maybe expect, like the ability to sell back furniture. How is technology enabling those initiatives to be successful? Yeah, you're touching on uh, different business models around circularity. And IKEA uh, wants to be fully circular by 2030. That means the main business model of IKEA would be uh, positive from a climate perspective and would be fully circular. And that is like a complete rethinking of everything. So is how do you uh, win back the materials? How do you recycle the materials? How do you prolong the life of different furniture? How do you change the supply chain to be able to incorporate back and actually have zero waste? So it is uh, very much of a, a huge, huge revolution. And that also with uh, the whole energy revolution. So IKEA has been um, making incredible investments into clean energy, not only for its operations, but also for many people to enjoy. And, and we firmly, firmly believe that the businesses need to have a purpose and a positive impact so it's, it's a good thing to do, but it's also really good business to be a good business, I would say. In your opinion, is the next big opportunity for IKEA to leverage technology for sustainability for the planet? I think sustainability is the biggest uh, challenge of the decade. And so technology very much can work towards accelerating sustainability for, you know, inhabitants of the whole world. So the, the tools are there, the energy is there. And so, you know, now it's like making it at scale so that we can find um, an equilibrium where we continue fulfilling the needs of people globally, but not at the expense of the planet. You have a unique background in music and engineering. Can you talk a little bit about that? I grew up in a family of musicians, especially from my mother's side. So I grew up playing piano and going to the conservatory, learning a lot of different disciplines like harmony and rhythm, composition, and, and playing with other instruments. And so I couldn't choose between engineering and music. And so I ended up doing both and graduating from the conservatory when, when I was uh, 21. And at the same time, sort of my curiosity about how things worked from an engineering perspective and doing that at the same time uh, that I was playing piano. So how did this inform your work on the tech side when you're learning piano and music theory? How did studying music help you think about tech in a different way? I think music helped me in, in different ways. Uh, the first one was self-expression. It's kind of releasing tension, expressing, putting uh, your feelings in a different way. And that's absolutely a human side that I love. It also helps with discipline because 
you know, sitting down and learning rhythm and actually going and playing a piece, you know, you have to work at it and not letting it go until you succeed at it. It builds some uh, resilience and it builds some perseverance, I believe, early on in the kids and, and moving up. So I'm really thankful that I, I went through that education. How did playing a musical instrument when you were young shape how you approach problem solving? Well, when you face for the first time a complex piece of music, it's overwhelming. It actually helps to go, okay, first we're going to decompose the, the huge overwhelming piece into uh, little pieces that help you understand, kind of slice the elephant at the end of the day and not letting it go because the first time it wouldn't work. You go super slow, but yet you learn. And with persistence, at the end, you are able to play the whole thing and put your own interpretation and your own signature to it. And it's a very, very fulfilling growth mindset, I would say. When, when you think and translate this to engineering, but any professional setting, very oftentimes the issues that we solve are huge. And they can be sort of like, oh, my God, how am I going to do that? But actually knowing where you are going and what the target is, the vision, then, you know, going back and sort of like slicing into simplicity, chunks that you can comprehend and testing until you get to the um, last piece and that vision. It's a learning of curiosity and and self-discovery while uh, doing that, that I think is really special because it taught me a lot for how tackling complexity later on in life. And if you didn't have that background, how would you solve problems differently? I think I would have maybe a bit less tools, but now that you cannot learn that with other things. My sister, for instance, was into sports and a lot of team sports, and that helped actually understand, you know, the energy and, and how to organize with other people. So I think every part of experiences for children and, and later on helps you build tools, skills, resilience, and, and especially the mindset to, you know, be able to tackle and, and be positive and stubborn that this can <laughs> be done. And that, yeah. that helps, I think, um, you know, with, with whatever uh, life throws at you professionally or personally as well. I really like the, the sentence, positive optimism, sort of stubborn optimism. It's, it's kind of like not letting it go. If you believe in something and you believe that this is worth it, then uh, not being set back by uh, the difficulties or the enormity of the challenge, and especially not listening to people that would actually put doubt in you. Because I think one needs to see by yourself whether you can, cannot, how you feel with this journey. And that's why I think human beings are able to accomplish wonderful things. And how far we have gone as humanity in all aspects, we're a better society every single year. Um, and, and I truly believe that we can solve big, difficult, hairy problems if we get together in, in a stubborn, positive way. How did you make the decision to choose tech over music? What drove that? I was uh, playing piano, and piano is quite an alone instrument. And so I was going to be preparing myself for playing eight hours a day, 10 hours a day in front of my piano. And even if I loved it dearly, I get my energy from the interaction of people. 
And so somehow the choice of engineering and going into technology, I, I believe was the right choice for me because it, it helped me work with teams and people. Having energy, leadership to guide teams towards accomplishing something together, that is a lot of joy for me. This is something that, that drives me very much. You encourage your teams to experiment. Can you give us a little example of what one of those experiments might look like? It is absolutely essential uh, for anybody that is is thinking about, you know, the unknown and how to exist and create in the unknown to be slicing the risk and experimenting along the way. No need to have a plan from A to B completely figured out because in most cases there is no one path. There's many paths. And so how to actually allow for the path to be discovered, created one step at a time through tests and giving the permission to people to fail and test is really important in that journey for the team to feel safe to take those risks. It is a reality in any tech company. In Google, for instance, where I worked uh, for seven years, that's, that's how you do things. Every day, the site of IKEA changes. And these are all experiments that you do in order to fulfill and connect better with the consumer. Experiments such as new products, like bringing 3D design to people at home through technology and seeing how people actually you know, react with these new possibilities. Tests to you know, reduce the cost in the inventor fulfillment. So it's, it's really a progressive buildup you know where you want to go and testing your way towards that ambition that I think is a, a new way of working and a, and a very, I think, fulfilling and empowered way of working for many people. So this sort of ties into our music discussion where you talked about slicing something large and complex into smaller bites. Can you talk a little bit about helping to scale that sort of thinking across a team? It's, it's actually mentally a lot easier to be inspired by something you want to achieve but at the same time, not making a jump out of a parachute in a plane, you know, you're making one step and you see whether the step was positive or not. If that step is positive, you can actually scale it. We can launch it in more countries and you can do more. So it's a way of working that helps people not being afraid of going in different directions that have never been traveled, really. That's uh, really the, the mentality. And uh, that slicing the elephant really works. It's very much of a non-overwhelming sort of way of working and very enriching because you discover and learn things you would never have predicted. Is there a book that you recommend? Something you think everyone should read? Well, Cristiana Figueres, The Future We Choose, uh, to me is a reference. And she talks about this stubborn optimism and facing a huge challenge as to getting, you know, all the leaders in the world of different countries to sign a Paris agreement around climate and how she went about it. There is a whole philosophy of life behind what she did that is remarkable. She inspired me big, big time to try to have that stubborn optimism in, in everything that, that I'm facing. And if someone read that book, what would they take from it? That nothing is impossible. Even when something is like so big that you want to give up, don't. Because, you know, we are part of an interconnected humanity. And so when we start doing little things and everybody joins, we can really achieve amazing things. So believing in your power of influencing and, and uh, the possibility of facing things, not in a naive way, 
but in a possible way to to accomplish and and to get us um, next generations especially to be better off. That was Barbara Martin Coppola. Before we go, don't forget Meet the Leaders' sister podcast, Radio Davos, helping you understand the biggest problems of our time. Find the latest episode of that and Meet the Leader on wef.ch slash podcasts. And don't miss my colleague Mark Kane from the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution on his podcast in AI We Trust. Here's a sample. Is artificial intelligence your friend or is it your foe? I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. This podcast surveys the global landscape for inspiration and lessons in developing responsible, trustworthy artificial intelligence. From prominent politicians to investigative journalists, from award-winning academics to nationally recognized authors, we interview key players across the globe to bring you the latest developments and most dynamic perspectives on artificial intelligence today. We release new episodes each week, so please subscribe and find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other major platforms. That was Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum and Marion Vogel from Equal AI, all with their new podcast, In AI We Trust. We will return in one week, where my guest is Johnson Controls CEO George Oliver. He'll talk about the surprising role buildings can play in tackling problems from the pandemic to climate change. Here's a preview. The pandemic, it has accelerated or has repositioned buildings and infrastructure in a much more strategic way. Especially in the last year, it has been everything we do on steroids. That's it for me. Thanks so much to Gareth Nolan and Robin Pomeroy for all of their help with the creation of Meet the Leader. And my thanks go out to this week's guest, Barbara Martin Coppola. And thanks to you for listening. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcasts. And for more extensive Q&As from our guests, go online to wef.ch slash podcasts. And follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and on Twitter using the handle WEF. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.